Welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. And we'd like to remind the Prime Minister that he has two special advisor vacancies to fill. Just saying, Boris. I'm Kevin Day and he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. I think it's fair to say, Kieran, we would make two very special advisors. Well, yes, especially if they want to uh, improve East-West relations. Oh, very good. <laughs> now, Kieran, this is not the first time I've had to make a general apology to strangers on a Monday morning. Uh, <laughs> because it's questions, today, but there are a few big news stories to get through. So we may not get to your question, dear listener, because, as you know, producer guy does get very antsy if we go over the hour. If we don't get to your question, we have got some good ones today. I promise you we will do shortly. Um so let's rattle through these news stories, Kieran, because some good, some bad. The pay-per-view experiment is ending for the time being, and for now, every Premier League game will be free to air. Um, well, it's, it's not quite as good as that. Uh, they, they are being distributed to the the broadcast partners, and ultimately, it's it's their choice as to as to how they do them. Now, Sky have been very good. They've used sort of I think they use Sky Pick. Which is which is a channel which is easier to access um, than if you've not got Sky Sports. Uh, the BBC, I think, have picked up one. I think Amazon are picking up one. So you, you might have to be part of Amazon Prime or to have some form of Sky account. But uh, the good news is that it's it's not fourteen pounds ninety five for the foreseeable future. Uh, and, and I think the Premier League has done the right thing here. Uh, they've suffered damage. The broadcasters have suffered damage. Uh, the only people that have really come out of this with any credit are the pirates. And yeah, we, we don't want to be seen to be um, you know, condoning or encouraging people to go down that route. But uh, it, it did become a bit of a mess. And there was a lot of finger pointing when perhaps people ought to be acting together. Yeah, see, Ali will be laughing at the idea that I, I said free to air because I, I have Sky and BT for work purposes. Uh, and, of course, as Ali keeps reminding me, I forget I have to pay for that. <laughs> she, and and th- those are for work purposes, which makes them, of course, tax deductible. Uh, really? I'll, I'll, I'll tell Bobby numbers. Um, we, there's a couple of questions I thought I'd throw in that we had, Kieran, around the pay-per-view experiment. Uh, Jack Walker so would it made more sense for broadcasters to show less popular games for free and make big games like Man City, Liverpool, or Palace, Brighton the ones to pay for? That seems to be quite a logical business sense, doesn't it? Um, it, it does. If, if pay-per-view and the main TV deals were being negotiated at the same time, that's certainly the way that we would go ahead. But under the terms of the, the present TV deal with uh, the Premier League and its uh, broadcast partners domestically, Sky and BT get first, second, third, fourth, and fifth pick of each matches for each weekend. So the only matches remaining, which were potentially for uh, broadcast under pay-per-view, were pick six to ten. Um, now, g- going forwards, if the Premier League decides that instead of... At, pr- at present, there's 380 games that take place in the Premier League, um, of which 200 are broadcast and 180 are not, if if the Premier League says we're going to have a combination of pay-per-view 
and uh, Sky and BT for all 380 games, it could be that some of the pay-per-view becomes first picks on a weekend basis, uh, in which case it it would make sense financially, certainly, uh, potentially to to have some of these blockbuster games uh, at the the higher prices. The downside, of course, of of that is that Sky and BT are going to turn around and say, well, we're not prepared to pay the the sums which we we presently pay because if you're going to leave us with uh you know no disrespect Burnley versus West Brom uh Brighton versus Leicester you know, and so on then uh that that doesn't make sense from our point of view because we won't be getting the viewing figures if we're not getting the viewing figures we're not prepared to pay the prices that historically we've been willing to pay right and talking of, of prices this is a question from Jesse Boyce and uh, now Jesse is a friend of mine. Uh, he's a Palace fan. He's a very handsome chap. Uh, and he has a very hip media question to go with his hip media beard. Is there a case, Jesse says, or would there have been a case, I suppose, for UK-based consumer brands to pivot some of their advertising budget spent to US broadcasts of Premier League games? Is the media spend good enough value for UK TV buyers to consider it? Now, Jesse actually asked me that question, uh, which means he's a very optimistic, handsome hipster. But I thought I'd put it to you. Um, because you may well understand the question, let alone have an answer for it. Well, I think it's the first time we've used the word pivot on the podcast, so so I, I do welcome that. Um, well, I, in, I, I, in this context, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, yes. Yes, the, the, the night involving the Russian girlfriend and her sister did involve a lot of pivoting, but that, that's for another show, of course. Um, the... The, the view that the, the advertising spend in in the US would be sufficient enough to, to make UK brands want to to sell more or, or want to buy more advertising space it it does have some merit. Having said that, I, I genuinely don't think the Premier League is as yet popular enough in the states. It's still seen as a niche sport. It's still seen as as a sport where. Uh, the, the demographics in terms of mainstream U.S. Uh, sports fans uh, is, isn't big enough. So uh, it, I think it's an intriguing question, but I, I don't think we're quite yet at that point. Uh, you know, should should there come a day, you know, when when some sort of the the, the son of the son of Project Big Picture uh, is now the way that football is run and matches are taking place in Miami and New York instead of Old Trafford and Anfield? Um, which, which I think ultimately what what some of these people want, um, then all of that could change. Don't say things like that, Kieran. Even in even in jest. Um, more more news. EFL clubs are inching inching Kieran towards that fifty million pound bailout package. Yes. So um, it, it appears, and, and trying to get a, a a definitive answer or definitive statement is isn't always easy. Um, it, it appears that uh, League One and League Two clubs, um, with the support of the Championship, uh, apparently, uh, are willing to take on the the fifty million pound bailout package um, that has been offered by the Premier League. Now, again, I think we the, the small print's absolutely critical here. Uh, my understanding is that that package is twenty million pounds of grants. And thirty million pounds of loans. Now, clearly, the clubs are unhappy about taking on debt. They they don't want to borrow money. That uh, there has been talk about strings being attached to that package. Um, Richard Masters appeared to implicate to imply that there weren't any. 
so you know who's who's telling porkies and who isn't we're never quite sure with matters of this nature um i, I think from a pr perspective it, it would have been better if the premier league had said we're going to give 50 million pounds to leagues 1 and 2 um in the form of grants no strings attached no loans uh but that they've not gone that far. We then come to the championship. And uh, the championship, all you can find out is that they are still in discussions. Um, they seem to want £250 million. Um, now, here it gets very confusing because Project Big Picture was £250 million. And that's how that particular number came into sort of into the public domain. But if you look at the small print of uh, Project Big Picture, they called that an advance. Now, another word for an advance is a loan. It's a payday loan. So I think some of the clubs themselves haven't quite understand the nuances of all of this. That um, There's still no wage cap in, in the championship, which is why some of the Premier League clubs are saying, well, well why should we give money to the, the clubs in the championship, where the, the average wage is currently £800,000 per player, per season for a, for a regular first-teamer. Um, there's issues as to whether that should be means-tested or not because, as, as we've said before, we've got the owners of Stoke who are worth billions and the, the, the 24 clubs in the championship are estimated to be worth £30 billion. So, you know, I, I can understand it from Steve Parrish's point of view. Um, and th- this idea that the championship, League One and League Two, are some somehow all linking arms together and, you know, high-fiving each other is frankly nonsense because uh, you've got individual clubs in the championship squabbling amongst each other and there's been regular talk about the championship going it alone in terms of a TV deal in some form of either Premier League 2 or just keeping all of the money at present, 20% of the money go is split between Leagues 1 and 2, and 80% of the TV money go to, to the Championship. So so those people are trying to promote uh, all, all 72 clubs in the EFL being one happy family, uh, I think are being a little bit cheeky. Yeah, and, and slightly apropos of this is contrasting news, Kieran, for uh, two EFL clubs this week. Um, Sunderland reportedly on the verge of being sold to a Swiss billionaire. Um, and, and I guess you'd be entitled to ask if you're an MK Donstan, for example, or a Morecambe fan, if Sunderland are being bought by a Swiss billionaire, why would they get a share of the £50 million that was otherwise being taken away from poorer clubs? Yes, and, and, it, and it does seem to be uh, an inconsistency. Now, what the EFL are saying is that the the owner's wealth and the owner's finances are irrelevant uh, in terms of distribution of money. And they are, they are very keen to say that we're not interested in means testing, although that does seem rather strange given that the six clubs involved in Project Big Picture were all chosen because of being means tested in terms of having the most income. So there's so many inconsistencies of this. Um, yeah, and also as, as a if, if we if the Premier League doesn't give this financial support and instead there is a package from the government, um, you and I are both taxpayers. Now, do, do I want my taxes to go to subsidise the the plaything, the, the executive toy of a Monaco-based billionaire? I, I just don't feel comfortable with that. And, and I think it's a, it's a difficult sell uh, politically. I think it's also a difficult sell if they're the EFL. Mm. Um 
But an easy sell for Sunderland fans, though, obviously, if this move goes ahead. Yes, yes. Um, the, the, uh, Stuart Donald was looking. Uh, he came up with this strange price of uh, £37.6 million was his asking price, which, which seemed a bit weird. Um, I'm not. I feel terrible doing a bit of "I told you so," but I went on to uh, the Sunderland newspapers and radio stations at the time and said, "Well, I think we're looking a good price for Sunderland will be somewhere between twenty to twenty-five million. It looks as if the agreed price is twenty-two million, um, which I think is is probably a, a better approximation of the value." But Stuart Donald is going to keep, uh, I think, 15%. And Charlie Methven, who made himself quite famous uh, in the Sunderland Till I Die documentary, he would still be owning 5%. So they would be minority shareholders. Why would they be doing that? Well, uh, if the the Swiss billionaire does put a lot of money in and Sunderland... yeah, they they rise through the divisions if they get back to the Premier League. Then, then I suspect that both Methven and Donald would be selling out their remaining stakes um, at a much tidier profit. It, uh, well, I'm, I think regular listeners to this pod who have been with us from the start will be amazed to hear that Methven is still at Sunderland anyway. But what do we know about these potential new owners? The links with Marseille aren't there apparently, but they seem quite quite glamorous, and the money seems legit. Well, the, the the money's certainly there. I, I think it's the son of the former o- owner of, of Marseille. Um, my my only concern is is there an element of parents giving the child? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get you an Xbox this Christmas. I'm not going to get you uh, the latest Lego. I'm going to buy you a football club instead. Um, and yeah, we've seen too often where new owners have come in who are wealthy, who perhaps have good intentions, um, they can be taken advantage of by people who are uh, exploiting their naivety, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so if, you, if you look at some of the owners who have actually been very generous, you know, you know, uh, Sheffield Wednesday's owner, uh, Delphon Chanciri, he's 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 put his money where his mouth is, left, right, and centre. But sometimes you think, well, he's he's not perhaps been well advised. Uh, you could say perhaps the same with the Venkies at Blackburn. Uh, so that that would be my reservation. If 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 he appoints the right person as chief executive and director of football, then I think this could be a real real step up for Sunderland. Even more dramatic news. Kieran, uh, so dramatic that it needs the EastEnders boof boof at the end. <laughs> um, Charlton owner Thomas Sandgard has been ordered to leave the club. Uh, so I suppose for the moment we should put the words owner in inverted commas. I mean, this is an astonishing story, isn't it? It it, it is. Um, there's Not there's more to, more to this than meets the eye, as always when it comes to uh, the people involved. Um, Tom, Thomas Sandgard bought Charlton Athletic Football Club from East Street Investments. Mm. Um, Paul Elliott, who was trying to buy Charlton at the time, um, he he failed the owners and directors test, so that, that was meant he was unable to buy the club. But I think he might now have been uh, rescinded that or reversed that. Um, he's now saying he's in charge of East Street Investments and um, that they weren't in a position to sell the club to Thomas Sangard. Now. Thomas Sangard is saying, well, as far as I'm concerned, I own it. Uh, if you take a look at the Charlton website, there's no reference to this 
uh, your bard, in effect, uh, order uh, or let, letter of intent from uh, Paul Elliott. Uh, and then we've got the lawyer involved, uh, the lawyer based in, uh, who lives in Mobley in, in Cheshire, where, where I used to live. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's all a bit murky. I suspect what's happened here is, is that Paul Elliott claims to have put in 700 grand to, to subsidise Charlton Athletic um, whilst things had turned sour over the summer. Um, I suspect this is an attempt either to get his money back or to to get the money uh, or, or to get some form of payout. We, we saw something similar happen last year when it came to Bolton Wanderers, whereby a deal was all set to go through. Um, and then at the last minute, somebody whose name's never actually been publicly put out there um, demanded £250,000 to sign off on the deal. So uh, all, as always, the only thing that we can be confident of, Kevin, is that the lawyers are going to get rich. Yeah. Basically, all that story needed was Barbara Windsor saying, get out of my club. Um, In the latest story, Kieran, of league clubs supporting their non-league brethren, we've had a few of these recently. Good news stories they are too. Eastbourne Borough half full of praise for Blackpool. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, we, we start with a few meh stories in terms of you know the good, goodwill to all men, but this 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 again sort of warms the cockles of your heart. Um, Eastbourne Borough, which is uh, you know, clearly a, a non-league club, uh, it played Blackpool in the FA Cup last week uh, in round one. Now Blackpool won the match, um, and normally the way that uh, any money from uh, uh, t- from a, an FA Cup match is dealt with is that both clubs uh, subtract the expenses. So for the home club, that would be, um, you know, the cost of the floodlights, the cost of stewarding and so on. Now, clearly, we, we were in lockdown at that stage, so, so there wasn't much to deal with. Um, the away team would then uh, say, well, these are our accommodation and travel costs and so on. And then the rest of them, any money generated from sponsorship and, and other bits and pieces is split 50-50. Um, hats off, fair play to Blackpool. They said, we don't want anything. You know, Good luck, Eastbourne Borough. Um, Blackpool do have relatively no, new owners. Um, I suspect this would have not have been the case had their former owner, the, the rapist Owen Oyston, still been in charge. But the new people, they understand football. And they understand the, the importance uh, of lower league football to, to, to places such as Eastbourne Borough, who, who only, get, only get to the first round on the FA Cup on, a, you know, on an occasional basis and therefore every penny counts. So uh, I'm, all I can say is, is fantastic work, Blackpool. Uh, again, you make us proud to be football fans. You make us proud to be connected with this wonderful game. It, it, it's great for Blackpool fans because after all those years of suffering under that dreadful family, for them to be able to sit back and, and listen to, to praise and, and to be comfortable that their club is in decent hands is, is very good. But Kieran, I'm afraid in, in true Price of Football style, we, we, we like nothing more than warming people's cockles. But you know, we, don't, we don't like cockles to be warm for long, do we? What, what we like to do is warm the cockles just as a little bit of the and then cool those cockles right down. And basically this last story is essentially pouring a bucket of ice water on the warm cockles because a, an issue that you've had uh, some problems with uh, is, is still ongoing and it involves Manchester United. 
Yeah, and we've said with regards to Manchester United, if ever there was a club that was managed to go two steps forward and then one step back, it, it was them. Um, on on the on the most recent show, we, we discussed the fact that they are not willing to pay the real lev- living wage. Now, the difference between the real living wage and, and the living wage is fifty eight pence an hour. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know how many people Manchester United have at that particular. Uh, at that particular wage level, um, you know, it, it is it is a big employer in Manchester. They didn't use the furlough. Yeah, we gave them lots of praise for that. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what they've done, in terms of uh, providing meals for people and, and facilities during the lockdown, again, hats off. But this just seems to be so petty because they were supposed to publish their results on uh, on on Friday. At, at midday, and somebody pressed the wrong button on the club website, and I, I get lots of uh, lots of announcements, lots of automatic updates uh, in my email. So it flew into my email inbox. Um, they, they'd lost quite a lot of money in in the in the first quarter of the year, uh, from from first of July to thirtieth September, and that was mainly due to the fact that. They they can't uh, they they can't have uh, fans attending matches so so they lost Matt okay so okay perhaps that does make it understandable as to why they're not prepared to pay this extra fifty eight pence an hour let's say for two hundred employees which would cost them yeah you know, probably around about forty thousand pounds over three months but they did announce we're going to pay the shareholders an eleven million pound dividend yeah now that. That just stinks, uh, and uh, I don't care where your your loyalties lie. You know, and, and Manchester United fans that have been in contact with me say, you know, don't associate us. You know, we are Manchester United fans. We are not Glazer fans. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is very much coming from the Glazers, showing their tin ear, uh, and I think it reflects poorly on the people making these decisions. Uh, if, if you put everybody, if, if, if we work on the basis of 200 members of staff, perhaps being on minimum wage at, at Manchester United, I think the total cost for the year is less than £200,000. Some players earn that uh, in a week. Yeah, it, it seems to me, Kieran, there's a, there's a disconnect. As somebody who spent some time in, in working for the National Health Service, I understand how... Uh, on a local level, people do very good things, but on the national level, you don't influence decisions. That's not a particularly good example. But it seems to me that at, at Manchester United, you've got you've got the local management who are doing the brilliant things for the community during lockdown, who are, who are helping the community, who are doing all sorts of stuff that would make the fans proud. And then you've got the people who own the club who are making the financial decisions, who are the ones that have no clue about what's happening on the ground. So it, it seems to me like it's almost... Two clubs, and as you say, I think United fans are very keen to to stress that difference between United and Glazer, and, and I think we we should probably do that as well because you know the, the 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 poor sods that are out there on the ground every day, you know, helping people are not the ones making these decisions about paying the living wage and, and paying the shareholders. But why somebody at Man United at a senior PR level doesn't realise the damage done by paying eleven million pounds to shareholders is is beyond me, and and we would we would we'll be asking Man United for a response. And I, I know that you have some relationship with their PR department, Kieran, in the 
in the in the sense of many many emails. So I, <laughs> it would be great if we could get somebody from United on to to talk about that. But somebody at a senior level who can try and justify those those financial decisions. But in the meantime, the rest of the club is a club that Man United fans can be very proud of. Now let's let's crack on with the questions, Kieran, and see if we can beat Guy's clock and keep us out of the overtime that he's so reluctant to pay, uh, along with the normal. Living wage. <laughs> people refusing to pay living wage. Uh, it just occurred to me halfway through that conversation. He's uh, a Man United fan as well. Yeah, it's all it's all starting to add up now. Yeah, his, his middle name's not Glazer, is it? That'd be great if his name was Guy Glazer. That would be brilliant. <laughs> um, our first question comes from Dan Balsamini, uh, and Dan is a proud Yorkshireman, but as you may have guessed from his name, he has an Italian father. Uh, and Dan Balsamini says, I'm a loyal supporter of both Leeds and AS Roma, which I know Kevin may find a bit questionable. Ha ha. Uh, no, Dan, I'm, I'm happy to make concessions for family ties. I'm a big man like that. Um, Dan says, according to Gazetta dello Sport, Roma ran at a loss of 204 million euros last year. 204 million euros. The second worst ever balance sheet for an Italian club, apparently. How, says Dan, are they able to continue within the UEFA FFP regulations and still be allowed to compete in the Europa League when they're running at such a huge loss? Surely that's much, much higher than FFP would allow. Um, well, it, it is much, uh, much higher than FFP would allow, Dan. Uh, the way that Roma are able to circumvent this particular issue is that the FFP rules have been relaxed by UEFA, uh, a huge number of clubs within the 55 nations that, that are under the UEFA umbrella um, are likely to have losses which exceed 30 million euros over a three-year period um, as, as a result of COVID. So what UEFA have said is that they are going to allow clubs to combine their results for 2020 and 21. And then they're going to make some, I think, some form of further allowances in respect of lost commercial income, uh, lost broadcast income and lost uh, match day income. So the, the, the actual fine print of this uh, has, has yet to be nuanced. Um, if, if anybody is interested in uh, taking a look at AS Roma's accounts, uh, I, I, I would encourage them to take a look at the, the magnificent work of the Swiss Ramble, who, who did a summary of this recently. Uh, we, we keep begging him to come on the, on the, on the show, but he, he's far too modest uh, to, to do so. so it's, it's, it's a real shame, but he, he, is the, he is the expert at all forms of European football and domestic as well when it comes to the numbers. Um, but he he did a very good summary, um, and and it really is a case of the it's the FFP rules that have been changed, which have allowed Roma to sort of uh, wriggle their way through this. But those lotties are very very scary. Yeah, I'd like to point out I'm not begging Swiss Ramble to come on. I I have trouble keeping up with you, Kieran, without <laughs> a, a, a proper genuine <laughs> expert in. Um, well, no, no, you're a proper genuine expert, Kieran. But Swiss, I imagine Swiss Ramble's conversation outside football would be less racy than your. <laughs> I might be wrong about football accountants in general. It might be that Swiss Ramble was full of stories about international supermodels. But COVID notwithstanding, Kieran, that loss of 204 million euros, that must have taken some seasons to run up. So surely this has been an issue 
before the pandemic struck, wasn't it? No, no, that was two hundred and four million pounds in a year. It's absolutely yeah. fucking enormous. Yeah, I, when I saw it, Jesus Christ! Well, okay. um, they they, they invest. They they spent a fortune on players' wages. They signed a load of players as well. Um, and they they didn't match that with income. Um, I mean that there have been issues in Italy because I think uh, yeah this again going back to a topic which which does rear its uh, head on a regular basis. I think the Italian government have discouraged uh, betting sponsorship, which hit them in terms of front of shirt. So so all of these things added together. Uh, they 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 went all in in terms of spending money in terms of both player wages and transfers. Uh, the money hasn't come in from a variety of sources, um, and they they therefore managed to lose those two hundred and four million euros in a year. Would there be clubs, Kieran, then that can take advantage of UEFA's relaxed FFP regulation? Would, would clubs be cynical enough to to do that? Say, on we've we've been given a little bit of leeway by this pandemic. Let's see what we can we can push. Oh, I'd hate to. I'd hate to uh, agree to something of that nature, Kevin <coughs> Chelsea. Um, but uh, yeah, some clubs potentially could do so. You never know. Wouldn't wouldn't like to name any. Yeah, you need to do something about that little frog in your throat, you know. <laughs> now, Chris Lomax, uh, thank you for this question, Chris Lomax, because it's it's one that I really should have asked recently, and it's one that's opposite to something we've already spoken about this morning. Chris says, when Project Big Picture was proposed. Large amounts of money, as you said, two hundred and fifty million was was one of the figures thrown about. Were promised to the EFL, the FA, women's football, grassroots game, etc. In times of Premier League clubs struggling financially, Chris just wants to know where was that money going to be coming from? Right. What was going to happen was the the, the architects of Project Pic- Big Picture were going to borrow that money, and then they were going to lend the, the two hundred and fifty million pounds to the clubs in the EFL. Now, again, they they call it an advance, but let's think about what what a loan is. A loan is when somebody gives you money, and then they get that money back from you at a future date. Well, the the, the two hundred and fifty million to the EFL clubs was going to be subtracted from their future share of the TV deal. Um, and, and the EFL clubs thought, well, that as, as we're getting a quarter of the TV deal, that won't be too bad. What they didn't realise was that after the, uh, after the Premier League clubs had chosen eight of their own matches for, for broadcast, all of a sudden, instead of having uh, selling, selling a TV deal worth 380 games uh, internationally, it drops down to 162 um, and you know, we, we've we've spoken about the Chinese TV deal collapsing. We know there's issues in the Middle East. The value of international rights, if if it drops to a, a package of 162 fixtures a year, uh, yeah, which is less than half of the present offerings, um, would would have taken a huge hammering. So uh, the, the the money was simply a loan. In terms of the money to the Football Association, this is described as a gift to the Football Association. By the architects of Project Big Picture, which, which is which is very kind of them. Um, uh, I, I would also just say, in passing, uh, that the the Football Association, who would have been in receipt of this one hundred million pounds gift, happened to have something called a golden share in the Premier League, uh, which has uh, which they are allowed to use when it comes to issues such as changing the size of the Premier League and changing the voting rights of clubs in the Premier League. Now, I, I don't, I'm not saying that the two things are connected. Uh, I'll leave other people to uh, draw their own conclusions on that. 
This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. I presume uh, to ask uh, answer Chris's question uh, again. This is a question he'll be asking in his own head now. Um, Two hundred and fifty million pounds would be very easy to borrow for those top clubs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, what what would happen would affect it. Effectively, would be the clubs in the Premier League would be acting as the bank of mum and dad uh, and being the guarantor. So they would formally borrow the money. Uh, I think if they did the decent thing, they would then advance it to the clubs in the EFL on uh, on an interest free basis. But, but we don't know. I mean, that 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 decision, remember, would be determined by the owners of six clubs in the Premier League. Um, and and then uh, it would be deducted from their share of the TV money. Yeah, was there some kind of video printer going on behind you then for a second? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, it sounded there's some kind of rubbish. It sounded like the football results were coming through in 1975. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been having. Well, I think we should point out we've been having some issues recording lately, Kieran. The 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 world wants you and I to get together, and I think sending messages down the electronic pathways end all this. So we can actually do this in the studio properly. Luke Judson has a good question, I think, here. Luke Judson, um, the first part of the question, is there a case that clubs and stadiums should be more protected by the FAL government? Yes. Uh, do you think it's possible to give each club a favourable rent deal from local councils as, in non-COVID times, thousands of away fans flock to these stadiums who spend millions in the local economy? That's a very good point, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. I mean, if, again, I... I... I think your answer to the first question, yes, all football clubs should be given some form of equivalence of, of a grade two listed building mm. um, to, to offer protection because we have seen property developers come in uh, with a view to taking clubs out of central locations and then forcing them to ground share many miles away and so on. So, yes, that, that should be the case. Um, in terms of the favourable rent, I can understand Luke's position, 
I would, however, say, I mean, you work in the you work in, work in the entertainment world, Kevin. Um, there's there's plenty of theatres. Um, you know, there are plenty of landmarks in London which bring in huge numbers of tourists. Now, if we're going to make uh, a special rule for football clubs, should that be extended to theatres? Should that be extended to zoos? Should that be extended to museums and things of this nature? Um, you know, and, and then it becomes a little bit more, more complex. Uh, clubs don't pay rent as such because a lot of the time – they are owned by the club themselves, yeah. so they wouldn't be paying a rent. Should they pay lower rates? That's, I think that's that's a separate issue. But again, at a time when local government is is as short of money as the businesses which are operating in those towns and cities, um, it would have to be replaced from either central government or or we'd have to work out some other formula. Yeah, you you know where I stand on this, Kieran, because it's the same view you have yourself. I I think football clubs. And museums and art galleries and theatres should all be given the same protection because unlike that idiot MP last week, I don't think it's binary. I think all things are part of our culture. It's not. I was so cross when that MP said it's football's not important in the south and culture's not important in the north. Idiot. Um, yeah. Well, mean, I, I used to go to the factory all the time. You know, I'm, I'm, when I, I lived in Manchester for forty years, and that place was. That place was absolutely amazing in terms of the development of northern music uh, and it, some of the best nights of my life, not that I can remember them, um, took place uh, at, at, at those types of gatherings. Yeah, and also Opera North is one of the best. No, let's, not, let's not start. Yeah, okay. So we'll be here all day. Let's just agree that it's, it's an idiotic thing to say and rightly upset people all over the country. Um, but, Kieran, as you are indeed an erudite and intelligent uh, I was going to say young man like myself, but we both <laughs> You'll be aware of the literary phrase, emotion recollected in tranquility. And Rich Young has a question that's asked in that in that exactly that vein, emotion recollected in tranquility. Rich is a Tramia fan, and he says his club, and he's right to say it, is regularly used as a standard bearer for well-run clubs. We talk about it a lot on, on this pod. You're always talking about Tramia and the Palioses. Uh, Rich says we take immense pride in this because it wasn't always so. For example, replacing very experienced manager Ronnie Moore with John Barnes and also putting the club up for sale on eBay to much ridicule. But Rich, still uh, smarting about this some years afterwards, his question is, is it actually possible to sell a club on eBay? And I mean, I presume delivering it would be a bit of a challenge, but is it possible to sell it on eBay? Um. Conceptually, and I've dug into this, I think the answer is probably yes. Um, the downside would be once the transaction is agreed, you've then got the owners and directors test to pass. So so whilst you could do it in, in theory, you could only get so far down the uh, you can only get so far down the route of the transaction uh, because clearly the, the, the EFL rightly would have to approve the new owners. Um, and I think the other issue would be, uh, I, I don't know about the last time you used eBay, but yeah, when I'm advertising an old, an old laptop camera or Nintendo game or something of that nature, uh, I, I tend to put you know, sort of you know, a 50 to 100 word description as to exactly what you're getting with a football club. 
what are exactly you getting? Because do they own the ground? Do they have a long leasehold? Uh, what about the the assets in terms of the training facilities and, and the equipment therein? You'd have to go to great lengths to list out uh, exactly what is included as part of the sale document, um, and, and that could make for a you know that that would be quite a long read on eBay. But I, I don't think it's impossible. Right. Uh, Kieran, you know what an idiot I am with money. I'm not allowed anywhere near eBay. It's not a credit card. I'm anywhere near eBay or bank site. Um, Lawrence Evans. Lawrence Evans says uh, that he is a Chelsea supporter, uh, and in, in brackets puts pre-Roman. If you must ask, um, Chelsea fans always offer that information, whether you ask it or not. I find. <laughs> but Lawrence wonders. And this is an interesting question, and I'm not entirely sure how you're going to answer this, Kerry. But Lawrence wonders whether the club are, are ruining not commencing the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge, because if they had done, they'd be doing a lot of the work when fans are not allowed in anyway. And then I suppose if Chelsea had predicted the pandemic and didn't tell the rest of us, just used it as an excuse to rebuild the stadium, they'd be in a bit of trouble. But it's, it's an interesting point. And he, Lawrence says, is there a... a a reason they should continue starting the rebuild now? Well, I mean, the the, the rebuild, is, is it going to take place? Is it not going to take place? What, what we have seen is that uh, planning permission, which was due to expire, I think it was uh, in, in April 2020, has been extended for 12 months. So it still could go ahead. Um, when, when COVID hit and we went into that first lockdown, I, I think all of us, half expected football to be taking place before some form of paying audience in September. Definitely. And that surely also applies to Roman Abramovich and everybody at Chelsea. So it it would have they would have had to have rushed through the the application. Um even if work had started, they ha- they have to play somewhere else. So again, you know, contracts are not signed it, it yeah over a five minute conversation of this nature you know it, it's not like uh you know, it's not like eBay in in that regard so you know where are they going to play is, is would it have been at Spurs new stadium would it have been at Wembley you know would they have been ground sharing would would they have actually gone to King's Meadow to play where you know they you know places like that so I, I think that was one issue the second issue is that even if they had decided they wanted to start work, um, would that have been feasible given that there were certain sections of the uh, of, of the economy which were struggling to get to work? Chelsea would have had to have signed a construction agreement with a major construction firm. And again, that takes a lot of time. And it could be that the construction firm are putting loads of clauses into the contract, which says, well, yeah, there could be a rise in COVID. Uh, what's happening as a result of Brexit? You know, there, there are issues in terms of material costs if they're being imported from other places in Europe. It, the, the contract itself is, is going to go for many, many pages. And I just don't think it could have been sorted out that quickly uh, when COVID arose. Yeah, I, I suppose you, you could argue as well that if they had started redeveloping the stadium when COVID arose, they wouldn't have been able to offer all that free accommodation to NHS staff as they did in the first weeks of the pandemic, um, which I think is important to mention because we sometimes give Chelsea a bit of a, a kick in. They become the poster boy sometimes for mega rich clubs. But 
as with all clubs, Chelsea have done their bit in this current crisis as well. But it's an interesting question from Lawrence. It would have been incredibly cynical if they had suddenly made that decision, as you say, in the course of five minutes to say, right, here's a pandemic, let's build our new stadium. Um, but of course, as you say, it never occurs to me that these things take years to, to sort out and plan, don't they? Um, unless you're Palace, in which case apparently you get some bloke in from an office down the road and sign the back of a postcard. There you go. <laughs> um, Thomas Giles has a question that under normal circumstances, we could probably discuss uh, on the whole pod, but we are running short of time a little bit. Um, as I think, I know we differ slightly in our response to this question, but Thomas Giles points out that the Solly Hole Moores chairman recently called for a merger between League Two and the National League and then to split them into two regional leagues. Thomas wants to know if this is a viable or a good option and says that he's a massive traditionalist, so his instinct is against it. I suppose you could argue, though, Thomas, that we had regional lower leagues from 1925 to 1958, so a massive traditionalist could equally be for it, Kieran. But this is something we've talked about a lot because instinctively I think the idea of regional lower leagues is, is a better idea than you do, I believe. Well, we, we, we do have regional lower leagues because we've got National League North and National League South. Yeah, fair point. Um, it, it's really a case of where where in the pyramid do you, do you start them? I mean, I, I got my spreadsheet out uh, this morning when I started researching this question. Um, and uh, in, in League Two, 19 clubs out of 24 were losing money. In the National League, 21 out of 24 are losing money. And you, know, you put that together, you say, well, if, if, there's any, if there's any means of either increasing revenue, which potentially you could do because in theory there would be more local derbies um, and cutting costs in terms of transport and accommodation, which p- again potentially would be the case, um, then then that does have some merit. The only reason why I'm opposed to it is that as a, as a Brighton fan, and we, we spent an awful lot of time in uh, National League, sorry, in in, uh, in in the old Division Three South, um, the, the team that we played most often during those days was Swindon. Yeah. Now, if you are playing Swindon on a regular basis, there's there's no geographical closeness between the two clubs. It was always a ball ache. Um, and as as an away fan, and I appreciate I'm I'm from the nerd part of football fandom. I've I've been to 117 grounds watching Brighton, and I I like going to Carlisle. I like going to Darlington. You know, because otherwise I'd have never visited these towns and cities. So football actually gives you an opportunity to to see different parts of the country, um, and and to experience what's life's like there, and you know, and some some of the local foodstuffs and so on. Um, and I've always thoroughly enjoyed it. And you know, and, and even though you know, I, I started going away to away matches in the seventies when when things were, uh, I think the official term was hairy. Um, yeah, it, you still used to enjoy the experience because it was genuinely exciting to go to some of these places, which you which you'd only ever seen on the map or in your in your shoot table of uh, football clubs. Yeah, see, it, it, several points arise from that, King. It's one of the things I would say to that MP last week who annoyed me so much I've forgotten his name. Um, those of us who like theatre and opera and dance and football, like you and I, we know a lot about this country, but all of that comes from following football. Because yeah. I wouldn't go to Sunderland on a Wednesday night unless a play was really, really good or I knew somebody in it and I was getting a free ticket and a free hotel. 
I probably wouldn't go to see her play in Sunderland, but I would happily go and see football. We we know more about football. We have more empathy with people around the country. We and also we see the damage that's been done to this country because we we travel around to these places watching football. Secondly. I just imagine trying to sell the radio broadcast rights of Brighton Swindon in 1954. <laughs> what the hell that would have been Tuesday night. You got you got a big first division game down the road. Wolves are playing Homved in the the European friendly. But you've got Brighton Swindon on the light program on the radio. And finally, how many spreadsheets have you got? Uh, well, I, I've got I've got one spreadsheet actually, and on that spreadsheet, I've got 156 different individual worksheets um one for every club in in the in in the in the of the 92 i've got covers most of scotland and then i do a divisional analysis as well and then i just start doing some random stuff so yeah yeah my big spreadsheet uh is uh it, it, it is a labor of love it, it, i put about six years of work into it if anybody wants a copy you know just just drop me an email and i'll send it to them it, it's 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 worth a fortune and nothing uh, at the same time yeah, it's, I'm looking forward to saying to Ali, uh, I asked Kieran finally how many spreadsheets he's got, and, and Ali will say, yeah, and he knew exactly the, right, the number off the top of his head, didn't he? So, yeah, probably. Um, uh, I just, I'm just slightly confused. I've just realised, Kieran, I've been happily chatting to you and listening to you, and I just looked and realised my headphones weren't plugged in. So <laughs> I'm slightly baffled. Obviously, you're coming through the... You're coming through the laptop, so let's hope this is all being recorded. <laughs> um, we have two questions to go. Uh, well, I felt we have a question and a statement. Uh, the last question is from Andrew Henderson, uh, and his question is about the value of academy graduates. And one of the reasons I love doing this pod is because virtually every week we get a question about something and you, that makes you think, I've, I've never never occurred to me, and it turns out it's something that should have occurred to me because Andrew's question is about the value of the academy graduates. Uh, as they haven't had a transfer fee paid for them, would they be a zero-value asset on the balance sheet? And could clubs revalue their asset as they progress? So, for example, could Marcus Rashford be revalued at £30 million and Manchester United book that as a £30 million increase in assets and therefore a profit? Um, right. Well, well, first of all, Andrew is correct. Um, football players are recorded at cost uh, by, by practically every club. So given that Marcus Rashford costs zero, as did Paul Scholes and David Beckham and uh, Stevie G, you know, and you know, uh, Ian Wright at Palace, presumably, because um, um, they didn't pay a fee. No, he came, he came from a um, non-league club. Oh, did he? Did, did you pay a fee for him? We paid, I think, a set of kids. It wasn't a fee. He came from Greenwich Borough. He was 23 by the time he got to us, but... Yeah. Obviously, we've got current examples like you know, Tyreek Mitchell, for example. Yep. Um, so that they go into the books at a value of zero. Now, could they be revalued? Um, here, we, we go into something called IAS 41, agriculture <laughs> and agricultural assets. Now, if you are a farmer and you've got a flock of sheep or cattle, and they are increasing in value, uh, then you can sort of revalue them at the end of each year. Uh, but it gets really messy. Um, and I think from a football point of view, and, and talking of Messi, of course, Lionel Messi would be uh, another example of somebody who Barcelona never actually paid a fee for. Um, if you If you are going to value them, 
who's going to work out the value. So you're going to have to go and go and pay some sort of expert, which is money leaking out of the club. So is, is that worthwhile? And then if you do value, you know, Marcus Rashford, I don't think it'd be 30 million. I think, yeah, Marcus Rashford, we're probably talking, you know, 150 million yeah. pounds yeah. Uh, at present. If you're going to value him, you're going to say, well, hold on, he's got four years left in his contract. And then our favourite word, Kevin, of this podcast, amortisation comes into play. So you book a profit in the year that you value him, and then you start to amortise him. So it, it swings and roundabouts. You get profits in one year and costs going through. In a, I think it's just so messy that it really wouldn't work. However, if it did become standard practice, the scope for creative accounting would be off the scale. Yeah, I feel honour bound as a comedian to say that a flock of sheep would be messy, Kieran. But um, is it a flock? Yeah, it's a flock. Was it a herd? No, it's a flock, isn't it? Yes. Well, you, you should know. You're a country boy now, Kieran. It's a flock. <laughs> yeah. And now, talking of amortisation, Jack Smallwoods. Uh, hello, Jack. Jack is a long-time listener and big fan of the show. Thank you, Jack. And Jack wants to thank us. Jack says that an issue came up at his work when trying to understand the gender pay gap and how we allocate the cost of shares to colleagues, an issue, I imagine, that was raised by a female member of staff. But Jack did some investigation and says that there was an, an old formula, or an odd formula, in an old spreadsheet, and lo and behold, it was only bloody amortisation. <laughs> um, I was able to explain what was going on and update the relevant formula, so thank you. Um, Jack, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying it was only bloody amortisation. <laughs> That was a bit more like Michael Caine. I was hoping it'd be a bit more like a Pete and Doug sketch. It's only bloody amortisation, Pete. <laughs> um, uh, all things you can Google, kids. But um, it just, Jack, it just made me laugh when Jack just felt the need to thank us. <laughs> it's just, I just had this image of Jack in his office going, yeah, it's, it's, I've got it, it's bloody amortisation. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very odd, the things that make me chuckle. Um, if you have a question for us for our next Monday's pod, which is questions, then it's priceoffootball.com. Don't forget you can uh, buy our merchandise, which is freely available and given to understand. Um, and in the meantime, I will leave you in the safe hands of Kieran for his usual short message. Thanks again, folks, for all the feedback. Um, hope you've enjoyed the show. If you do, please press the subscribe button. If you could give us five stars uh, and, and a review, then that would be great. Uh, it, it does make a difference when when guys trying to negotiate to get us guests on the show because they look at the charts and it pushes us up the charts. Uh, you can say whatever you want. You, you could say it would be uh, better with Dominic Cummings and Prunella Scales hosting it than myself and Kevin. It really is of no care interest to us. Write whatever you want um, and look after yourselves and look after your loved ones. And buy our books. Yes. <laughs> and stay safe. I've always wanted to be the one to say that. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. I'm for the